Hello, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Learning to Live podcast. My name is Chaz Okada, and this week we have Mr. Chuck Sirak, founder and CEO of Sweetwater Sound. Sweetwater Sound is the largest online music equipment retailer in North America, and they are based out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because I go to school in Connecticut and I'm originally from Colorado, I had to fly out to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I was very fortunate that Sweetwater welcomed me. They actually let me do the interview in their performance theater, which was such a surreal experience because years ago, I, I'm such a fan of Joe Satriani because I'm a guitar player, and I actually got to watch him perform on that stage on YouTube, and that's where I did the interview with Mr. Serac, and just being there and getting a... T- Getting to tour the Sweetwater facility, it was amazing just to see how extensive their operation was. Today, Sweetwater is a $725 million business, and Mr. Serac is the sole owner of that business. There's no investors. It's not like a large corporation that's publicly traded. We'll get into that, and we'll talk about that later on in the podcast. But Sweetwater has been doing 20% growth per year which means that in less than four years, the company doubles in size. And lastly, before we get into the interview, I will split this one up into two parts. It's a long interview, but with that said, it has a lot of valuable information, and I learned so much from everything that he talked about. And I really want to thank Mr. Serac for his time taking an hour of his day just to speak with me for this podcast project. It means so much to me. And I just hope that you also, as the listener, can take a lot away from this podcast. So let's get into the show. Thank you so much, Mr. Serac, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So I understand that you're quite the entrepreneur. It doesn't take much of a Google search to find that out. Have you always had this entrepreneurial spirit? I have. I started at five years old. My first business was a business where I made potholders, put the loops in a frame and took the loops around the outside. And I sold thousands and thousands of potholders uh, as a five-year-old. And my next business was a newspaper route. And most of my friends had 40 or 50 customers. I figured out that if I delivered to apartments and senior citizen uh, homes, which are smaller and close together, I could deliver 330 papers every day. And just been an entrepreneur my whole life. What do you think drove that spirit? Do you think it was your parents teaching you that? Was it just something inherent in you? Well, my dad was a chemical engineer by trade, but he also had a lot of businesses on the side. He was definitely entrepreneurial. Um, I don't know if it came from him or if it just came from my inner drive of always wanting to do lots of things. And I'm very driven, have a a lot of passion to do different things. And I think that drove it also. What type of student would you say you were? I was a good student. Uh, I loved to learn. School was pretty easy for me. I didn't have to study a lot. Um, but all the way through school, I was going down a dual path of doing music and uh, also wanting to be a doctor. But then I went on a road as a musician, and I never turned back. But that path of wanting to be a doctor, I mean, I took all of the college prep classes, chemistry, Latin, all those sort of things. Did you go to college, and what decisions did you make after high school that brought you here today? 
Sure. I did not go to college. That doesn't mean I'm uneducated. Clearly, I've been educated in other ways. But uh, being a musician in high school, I took as many music classes, but also other classes. I graduated with nearly double the number of required credits because I took lots of summer school and after school. And I just really do love to learn. But uh, I went on the road as a musician thinking I would do that for a year and then I would come back and uh, go to college. But uh, once the music is bubbling in your blood, it's a little hard to stop. And so I played on the road for several years and came home and started a recording studio in my VW bus and uh, would have loved to have gone to college. And, and again, that's not to say I'm uneducated. I, I read really fast. One of the few things I can do is speed read. So I read a lot of material. I learn. I'm self-taught in virtually everything I've done. And I've done every job in, in the Sweetwater Company and then some, um, but started the VW bus and uh, after being on the road for several years, I came home and started a recording studio uh, in that same VW bus. And I would pull the bus alongside the church or the school or the nightclub. I'd run 200 feet of microphone cables in and hook up uh, microphones and, and record the band or the choir or the preacher. And I'd sit in the bus with headphones and record them on my reel-to-reel tape recorder. And then I would take those recordings from my VW bus to my very modest 12 by 55 mobile home. And that's where I would edit them and put reverb on them and, and that sort of thing. And after doing that for a couple of years, I bought my first house on the west side of Fort Wayne. And it was a small 1,000 square foot house, but I was able to build about a car and a half garage recording studio. And at that point, customers started coming to me instead of me having to go on location to record them. And what really changed my business in 1984, I got to go to the big music dealer trade show in Chicago called the NAMM Show. And I saw a prototype of a Kurzweil K250. And it was the first synthesizer that played back digital recordings of other instruments. Well, that was pretty cool because I thought at the end of my own recording session, I could ask my clients if they'd like to hear their music with an upright bass or a 50-voice choir or 45-piece string section. So I bought one of those, brought it back to Fort Wayne. I eventually reverse engineered how it worked. Um, I had already taught myself electronics from running the recording studio. I taught myself computer programming. And so I figured out how the Kurzweil worked. And I started making my own sounds for it. I started making my own software for it and became friends with other famous Kurzweil owners. And it was a very expensive instrument. So the people that bought them were either studios like myself or famous musicians like Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. And I became friends with them and gave them my sounds. Uh, they started giving me credits on their albums for the sounds. And then the next thing they said, we'd like to buy another Kurzweil or we'd like to buy parts for ours. And so I became a dealer to sell them parts, to sell them Kurzweil's. And then they said, I understand you can do sheet music on the computer. And I said, I know how to do that. I'm doing that in my studio. So I became a dealer for the sheet music software and sort of exploded. And, and you fast forward to today, and we've got 400 sales engineers. We have 5 million customers, and we're all helping them with their music equipment and their music gear, the same way I did with Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. How did you build that inventory after you started selling your Kurzweil's? You know, one, I didn't have a lot of money, and, and I started very humbly in that VW bus. So sometimes it would be a matter of barely having enough money to pay the bills. But um, I would bring the inventory in and maybe have, if, if I had to buy three as an example, I might get two of them sold first. If I get them sold ahead of time, then when the inventory comes in, I only have to come up with the money for the third one. And, and uh, you just build it one piece at a time. Do you stick with that same model today? So the cust you before you get the inventory, you already have the sale done, or do you store the inventory and 
sell right. Than no, that. today we uh, we're big enough. We have to store the inventory, and we've probably got about sixty million dollars of inventory in our warehouse. We have thirty six thousand different uh, unique items, um, but we have to have it in stock so we can satisfy the customer right away because they quite often want it today or tomorrow or in a couple of days for sure. How important were those early on relationships that you made in the music industry? Did those progress you further or help boost you? Absolutely. And our business is all about the referral business. And so those early, early customers, early friends would tell their friends, and that's how the business grew. But that's also how we got the credibility with the manufacturers to be able to have access to buying their products or to become a dealer for their products. So... Before the internet, when you were learning all these things, like the electronics and coding, or computer software, I should say, how did you learn that pre-internet? Because I'm somebody that grew up in the internet age. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, the information's more accessible today. I wouldn't say it's easier today, because there's probably more technologies and more things to learn, but the access to it is much easier. But back then, um, there were books that were available. I mean, it wasn't like we were in the Stone Ages here, um, but I could do books. But I also am real good at just reverse engineering things, looking at it, figuring out how it works, you know, and uh, that's pretty easy for me, and that's how I've learned how to do most things. Growing up, did you ever have any challenges with anything such as learning or maybe your personality type? Did you have too many interests and it was hard to focus on all of them? That's probably more of a problem I have today. Uh, I do have lots of interests, lots of loves. Um, you know, I didn't even think about it when I was little. I was just so driven. Um, again, schooling was easy, so I didn't have to study hard for that. I usually was pretty much ahead of the class. Um, what was important to me in the early days, though, were Boy Scouts. And uh, Boy Scouts are not necessarily so popular today. But when I was in Boy Scouts, it was a great organization. It's still a great organization. But I learned lots of real-life skills from cooking to tying knots to using knives and sharpening tools and all that. But probably even more importantly, what I learned were some of the Boy Scout laws and rules. And uh, one set of those principles that I just still live by today is that a Boy Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, clean, brave, and reverent. Those are amazing principles to live by personally, and they're amazing to live by professionally. And I don't make every employee learn those, but I do recite them to all the employees, and, and I tell them they can Google them and find them. And if they want a, a compass to know how to, to operate at Sweetwater, those are good principles to operate by. As a Boy Scout, you also learn to always be prepared. You always learn to treat people the way you would want to be treated, and frankly, always do the right thing. And those are just kind of the guidelines that we go by every day. I think that shows a lot in your business model as well. I'll get to that in a bit. Sure. But so how did your business as a music retailer change when the internet came along? Because now Sweetwater seems to be an online business, whereas before the internet, it was not possible to have that model. That's right. Um, when I really started selling equipment to my friends was probably 1986, 87, before the internet came. And frankly, we did it the old-fashioned way with newsletters that I did on a dot matrix printer. There's actually uh, Sweetwater newsletters that are floating around here that are done with a, a dot matrix printer. And, you know, I started by sending 300 letters to my friends, and then it was a 1,000 letters, and it was several thousands of letters. Um, there were periods where we hired Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts to help put stamps <laughs> on those newsletters and that sort of thing. I saw a post the other day. My sister remembers coming and spending hours and hours putting stamps on letters. Um, but we did register our URL, the sweetwater.com, very early. Um, we think it's one of the very first, if not the first, URLs in the music industry, 1994. Wow. So we were able to start communicating with customers very soon after that. 
But uh, it changed with the internet because we can reach more people today and it's, it's more efficient to reach people and we can reach them faster and with more information and pictures and you know, all that stuff. Do you think your early on experience where you were just so innovative entrepreneurially that you saw these indicators that the internet could have been something massive and you jumped on that? Or how did you know about the internet? I don't know. That's a great question. I'm not sure that I could have ever envisioned it being as big as it is today, but I thought it was cool. I like cool. I love technology. And so the idea of being able to, I mean, I remember making the very, very first web page, and uh, our logo back then was a real from a reel to reel tape recorder. And uh, just being able to see that come alive and be more 3D than just printed material was fascinating to me. So after the internet came along, how did you change your business model to adapt to the internet and then eventually go to where most of your business is done through the internet? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that we really changed uh, our business because of the internet. We still operate with the same philosophies, the one-on-one -on -one relationship with our end users. That's a unique thing about our model. Each one of our sales engineers has somewhere between 1,000 to 4,000 customers they deal with regularly. And when that customer calls in, they always get the same sales engineer or if they're making outgoing calls, they're calling their, their group of customers. Um, what the internet has done, though, is made it easy for customers to see and envision what the various products are. But the actual philosophy and the model of the business is really the same as it's always been. Take care of our friends the way I would want to be taken care of. So you talked a lot about a sales engineer, and that's one thing that I was really impressed by when I interact with Sweetwater is a sales engineer. So how would you describe a sales engineer? Sure. Our sales engineers, first off, sales in any industry is the lifeblood. If you don't have sales, you don't need anybody else. But um, that, I will also reverse that and say that as great as salespeople are or sales engineers, they need the rest of the team. And I preach that all the time, that the folks that are answering the phone or the people packaging the boxes or the tech support or marketing, they're just as valuable, just as important as the sales engineers. In fact, I would say nobody is any more important or any less important than anyone else. We all have the same dreams and fears and uh, aspirations. But a sales engineer, before they come work for us, usually has a four-year degree in music technology or they have a lot of experience on the road or in a studio and we bring them here and we interview them like crazy uh, we test them and and make sure that they're really going to be the right sort of personality to be successful at our company and if they get through that interview uh, and we're looking for things like do they have fire in the belly do they have a moral compass that goes the way that we want to do um, if they do have those sort of things then we'll we'll put them in Sweetwater University and for 13 weeks eight hours a day, 300 classes taught by 80 different teachers. We will teach them how to develop a relationship with customers. We'll teach them how to work our information system. Um, and we'll, we'll teach them the, the few product things that they may be a little bit short on knowledge. And at that point, then they can be, and only then can they be on the phone with customers. Um, and, and I say that because I don't want them on the phone until I know they're going to do a great job. Everybody in this company has the ability to add credibility to our company or take credibility away. And I can't risk having our brand damaged because a sales engineer gets on the phone and says something that's wrong or um, something inaccurate. And you know, there's lots and lots of things to know, so you can't know everything today, but what you can always do is tell the truth. 
And it's fine to tell a customer, I'm sorry, I don't know. Let me research it and find out, and I will get back to you. And then you do that as a sales engineer. The worst thing you could do is say, yes, it has four outputs. And then as soon as the customer hangs up the phone, they Google it and find out it only has two outputs. You're now a liar at Sweetwater, and they assume everyone is a liar at Sweetwater, and they've now borrowed credibility from us. So you can't do it. Just first thing in a Boy Scout. Boy Scout is trustworthy, loyal, and so you have to be trustworthy to yourself and to your customers and uh, just always tell the truth. And again, it's fine to not know. There's so many products, you can't know everything about every product, but you can always tell the truth. Where did this idea first come from when you're like, oh, we should have these people that interact one-on-one and develop that customer relationship? Well, that came because that's what I did. I I was on the phone in the early days helping my friends, and they'd ask me questions about the product. And in those days, there were far less products, so I knew you know I could answer them pretty easily. But uh, that's just the philosophy of taking care of people the way I'd want to be taken care of. It seems like you've built a really strong ecosystem here at Sweetwater. What sorts of operations go on behind the scenes from the time that a product gets ordered online to the time it gets delivered what what what's that process look like sure so it depends what the product is the process changes a little bit but as an example a customer could come to our guitar gallery and order a a guitar at three o'clock in the morning in their pajamas which is awesome i love it they can see thousands and thousands of guitars down to the wood grain and the serial number and they can compare the wood grain some might have more wood grain some have less wood but you place that order online and the next morning your sales engineer is going to call you back and say thank you for the business and by the way would you also like some extra sets of strings to go with it and maybe you need a case or maybe you need some picks and and those sort of things. So we want to make sure the experience is really great for the customer. And then behind the scenes, uh, we're pulling that guitar out. We're making sure it's perfect because I want it to be perfect when the customer opens it up out of that box. I want it to be Christmas every day to our customers. And and so we're doing that from a, a service point of view. Of course, if it's a credit card transaction, we're processing the credit card or if there's some sort of, you know, multi-payments or something like that, we're making sure all that happens. But all this stuff happens pretty quickly. And next thing you know, the guitar and the picks and the uh, maybe the tuner and strings are going down the conveyor belt and they're getting packed and, and they're going to be shipped today. I mean, we ship virtually everything the same day. Um, it'll go out by FedEx or UPS or some other sort of carrier, but usually FedEx or UPS. And depending where the customer lives, they'll get it tomorrow or the next day or hopefully within a couple of days. And hopefully when they open it up and they find not only a great guitar that's that's been set up ahead of time, but they'll get a thank you note from me and they'll get a handful of candy. It's kind of our sweet way of saying thank you. Thanks for doing business with us. Are there any challenges in that process that you wish didn't exist or anything that you're actively trying to work on to streamline that process? You know, our actual process is pretty efficient, pretty fast. That's because we can ship so fast. You know, we have a little bit of a challenge right now today in our building because we're just really, really scrunched for space. Uh, We made an announcement a few months ago that we're doing a $76 million investment and building a brand new distribution center, but that won't be online until the spring of 2020. So until then, we're we're a little bit crippled there and uh, people are standing on top of each other and saying excuse me a lot in our building. I'll be anxious to get our new building done so there's more room. That part, you know, we're getting by fine with that. Um, You know, what I wish is that customers knew we really are different. Um, There are not any other stores in the country that have sales engineers at the level of training that we have. There are not stores that are doing this 55-point guitar gallery checkout the way we do. And there aren't really stores that stand 
I mean, stores will have warranties, and but they can reach me. They can reach Chuck Surak, you know, with email, with phone, um, you know. To, and for a company being the size we are, to have customers have access to me is, is pretty pretty amazing, and I'm proud of that. But really, the bottom line is we're a company that cares. I'm interested in the long-term repeat business out of the customer, not one transaction. And I just wish the customer realized there was a difference between us and our competitors. You know, I, I own my own company. I don't have other shareholders. I don't have other investors. And so it directly affects myself and my wife and my children and the people at Sweetwater. It's not like we're some big publicly traded company or a company owned by a capital firm. Um, I think it's the best of both worlds for our customers that we're big enough today to be meaningful and to be able to have all the major brands and can really take care of the customer, but yet we're small enough they can still reach us and get personal service. And that's what I love about our company. But a lot of times we're, we're seen as just this big, big giant, and yet we're still personal and human and reachable. Certainly. I've heard a lot of those ideas about repeat business. You want to take care of your customer. That seems to be very important in business. Absolutely. Was there a time that you did not own all of your company? That's a great question. There was a period for about uh, five years from 1997 to 2001 that I had sold a majority, 80% of the company, to a great capital firm in Chicago. And uh, I ran it like I always had, but they were the majority owners. But after five years, the way those capital firms work, they usually want to get out. And uh, they made me do presentations to several competitors across the country that were very interested in buying Sweetwater. And um, after getting offers from all of them, they said, we need to take this highest offer. And I went back to my partners and said, I want to buy the company back from you. And they kind of scoffed because they were the, uh, the big Wall Street sort of guys. And and they didn't think I could really come up with the money, but I showed them a way that I could come up with the money, and we bought the company back. And that was way back in 2001, so 18 years later, my wife and I own it 100%, again, with no other shareholders. That's fantastic. Yeah. What were you thinking at the time when you sold the company? Great question. The company was pretty small. It was about $9 million at the time. Today, we're $725 million, you know, three-quarters of a billion. But back then, at $9 million, all of the professional friends around me were saying, oh my goodness, how much bigger could Sweetwater get? And you have all your money wrapped up in it. You should take some money off the table. That's a common thing. That's And I was so naive. I said, oh, okay. And I was taking the advice of my attorney and accountant and that sort of thing. And and in fairness to them, they didn't have the vision. And really, I didn't either, that how big it could get. Um, so they wanted me to, to protect myself and take some money. And so that's what I did. I sold a majority of the company to this great, great firm in Chicago. I was very fortunate that I hooked up with a good firm. And uh, they gave me a lot of cash. Um, and yet they allowed me to run the business like I always had because it had always been successful. And uh, I say four and a half years later or so, when they wanted to get out, I was, had the great opportunity to buy the whole thing back. What's really interesting about that story, you know, the very skill set that it takes to be an entrepreneur, take those risks and jump out, uh, is common for a business to start up. But it's pretty uncommon for one of those entrepreneurial businesses to get where they're making much more than maybe their salary, an employee's salary. Maybe it's a couple hundred thousand dollars a year or something. When, a, when an entrepreneur company gets to a million dollars, definitely five million and almost certainly at 10 million, the very skill set that it takes to, to have the risk and to be an entrepreneur is probably not what an owner wants to, to have sustained business. They want to bring in, especially when there's another capital firm involved or in other people's investment, they don't want a risky kind of person at, at the helm. They want a manager that can control things. And, and I was able to, to work through that one to 10 million and keep 
hanging on to my company, if you will. Again, I sold it for a short while, but with the idea of being able to buy it back, you know, and, and it's really unusual at $100 million where the founder is still running the company. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I don't take credit for that. I take credit that I've hired really good people all the way around me and allowed me to manage it like that. But as we're approaching a billion dollars, and we're going to be there in the next two, three years if business continues, um, to be a billion-dollar company and still be in control is, is highly, highly unusual. It just really is. But it's because I've surrounded myself with great people that can do all those jobs that I did at one time or another. They can all do them better than me today. Would you say that the way that you grew when you were at 100,000 versus a million versus 10 million versus now three quarters of a billion, is that the same? And is that just through your customer relationships and your strong personal care? I really do. I think it's exactly the same. I, I It's back to that Boy Scout thing and, and always treating people the way I'd want to be treated. Um I just got interviewed, or my wife just got interviewed the other night, and, and they asked, how has Chuck changed in the last 20 years? How's the business changed? And it's definitely gotten bigger. Uh, we carry more lines and all that sort of stuff. But the basic principles of the company and the philosophy of always doing the right thing for the customer has not changed at all. You know, we've probably gotten better at it, if anything. We do more things and more value and more services for our customers than we've ever been able to do. Are you more risk averse now or do you still see some sort of risk and you're like, I'm going to take that risk? You know, I, risk, that's a great question also. I, I have never been bothered by risk. I've never even looked at risk as being risk. And I, I know a lot of people do. And, and so uh, I'm not judging them. To me, I don't see the risk because I know there's always a way. In fact, one of the things I'm known for saying is that failure is not an option and anything is possible. And so I don't see it as risk. I see if I do this, this, and this, there's very little risk. I'm going to step right through it. And, and like I say, failure is not an option. I, I just don't believe in that. And, and so I think you can always work harder, work smarter, maybe change the direction a little bit, but there's always a way to get something done. And so I don't look at things as risk, um, but it'd be, I can visualize how the success could be. So I'm a part of a group on my college campus it's called the Yale Entrepreneurial Society. And so I have a lot of friends that have a lot of business ideas, but they don't quite know the next step to take after just having the idea. Do you have any advice to get past that initial blockade? Sure. Um, you know, and I have a lot of people come and see me also and, and have lots of ideas. And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but, but ideas are pretty easy to find. What you really need to do is turn that idea into something. And I am sure in my early days that the people around, I know, I remember clearly that the people around me didn't understand what I wanted to do. And frankly, they were somewhat discouraging. A recording studio in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that needs to be in Nashville. That needs to be in LA or New York. And uh, I'm sure I got frustrated when they didn't support my vision. And as I look back today, that was a little bit arrogant on my part to think that they would understand my vision. They weren't walking in my shoes. They weren't living, dreaming, thinking about it the way I was. And so if I flip that around, what I would say to a young entrepreneur or a potential entrepreneur, you just got to go for it. But you also have to be willing to be all in. And, and sometimes I'll get people in my office and they tell me they want to be an entrepreneur. They want to start a business. And, and I'll go, why? Well, I don't want to work for the man. And I only want to work 30 hours a week. And, and I, I, quickly tell them that probably won't work because there are other people that are going to work much harder and, and, and much stronger and be, they have a whole different reason to be in. And to be an entrepreneur, to raise money or to make money, I personally 
money doesn't do much for me. And it's easy to say, especially if you're in a situation where you want more money, but I've never been driven or focused on the money. Uh, and, and so I'm not suggesting you have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I'm not saying that, but I think you do have to be 110% all in. You got to just be willing to give it all. And if you're not willing to give it all and go for it, there'll be someone else that will. And so they'll have the same idea and take your idea and away they go. Um, but, but I just think you got to be 100% all in you got to be willing to sacrifice. You know, I probably gave up relationships and friendships and all of that. Um, I don't, I feel bad about it, but I don't regret it either. It, it obviously worked out for me. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you want to get advice from people all around you. And then you weigh that out, but give yourself probably a little more uh, value on, on your feelings on it. In other words, put their stuff in the mix, but make sure that your own uh, feelings and your own beliefs and your own vision and dreams carry as much weight as maybe all the other advisors put together do. And then, you know, what I'd say is, is absolutely go for it. Failure is not an option. And you do it one step at a time. You know, I didn't grow Sweetwater to three quarters of a billion dollars overnight. I did it over 40 years and a lot of nights. Uh, I started very, very humbly. I told you with a VW bus and a, and a 12 by 55 mobile home and uh, didn't have, nobody gave me any money. I couldn't get a bank loan, you know, that sort of thing. But I just did it one, one client, one thing at a time. That's interesting because I know for some people they say, oh, I don't have enough money, but it seems like you were smart about growing. And just like you said, one step at a time, you, you had three, uh, Kurzweil's and then you'd sold two of them and then you get the inventory. Right. And so I think that that's probably a good piece of advice for a lot of people out there. And, and you can start very modest. You know, maybe I will tell you the first couple of years as I was starting Sweetwater or as I had the vision for Sweetwater, I was still working a day job. I'd work my eight to five job. I fixed um, Hobart food equipment. So control systems for microwave ovens and dishwashers and all that. But at five o'clock when I was done at my day job, I was recording till two o'clock in the morning, people in my, in my studio and until I could get enough studio business that I could do it full time. And I remember that scary time when I quit my day job and that guaranteed paycheck that was coming in two weeks. But I also was just unleashed. You know, I knew I could move forward at that point and, and I just worked on it hard. But the biggest key I would say is just the willingness, the willingness to be all in. And I'm, to this day, I'm that way even though I'm, I don't have to worry about the success of Sweetwater anymore, everything I do, I'm in, all in, 110%. If that's doing my interview with you right now, if that's talking to my 12-year-old daughter, I'm just focused and 110% in with her. And, and every business idea that I work on, I'm all in. I don't do something partway if I'm going to do it. That's certainly the right mindset to have. And it's tough because you get a lot of people that don't think that way. And sometimes they distract you or they start talking negatively or they start criticizing what you're doing. And it's kind of hard to be all in. But I think that it's certainly refreshing to hear another person think in that way. Right. I'm sure athletes go through the same thing when uh, they have to work really, really hard day in and day out and not let the distractions bother them. I think we need to approach entrepreneurism or starting a business the same way an athlete would if they're working out to be on an NFL team or NBA team. You just got to be all in. So this concludes the first half of the interview with Mr. Serac, and now I'd like to comment on a few of the key points thus far. First off, Mr. Serac mentioned Sweetwater University and how he sends the sales engineers through this intensive training program to make sure that they are well qualified for the job and responsibilities that they are about to take on. 
This is similar to episode one with Mr. Steve Barrow when he talked about empowering his employees and providing them value and making them feel like their position is important in the company. And then this also goes along with episode two with Captain Ken Redmond from United Airlines when he talked about treating your people with respect. I think that Mr. Serac is just another example of this sort of mentality of I'm going to take care of my employees and the idea in society or the idea in a lot of popular media is that the boss is the enemy or the boss is somebody who is bad. I I don't like my boss. That's a common idea. But all three of these great leaders are really showing that that doesn't have to be true. A true leader is somebody who cares for their people and who looks out for them and gives them value and shows them direction and shows them the vision that they have in store. Mr. Serac with his Sweetwater University, he's really instilling that Sweetwater vision and Honestly, everybody that I interacted with throughout my tour at Sweetwater, they really understood what Sweetwater was about and they understood the vision and they understood the importance of those Boy Scout values. I just really think that Mr. Serac did a great job of communicating that to all of his employees. And to be completely and totally clear and honest, I am not sponsored by anybody. I don't get paid to say these things or do these podcasts. I just really think it's exciting as a young person to be able to learn from people who have already made it and done great things and be able to take their advice and learn from them. And hearing somebody who has such a positive outlook on life, it's really inspiring for me. And it's like a role model. I I want to become more like that when I grow up because I know that I will have some sort of influence, whether it be small or large, in the world when I get older and move through my career. So that's why I emphasize these positive attributes so much in my podcast episodes. And lastly, I would like to thank everybody who made this interview happen. And those people, if they're listening, they know who they are, and I I really send a big thank you. And if you found this podcast interview valuable in any way, please share it with a friend. And there's also a Facebook page, a Twitter page, an Instagram page, and those should be linked in the podcast description. You can visit the website at chazokada.com. That's C-H-A-Z-O-K-A-D-A.com. And maybe if you think of somebody, if you know a Boy Scout or Girl Scout in your life, you can say, hey, listen to this interview with Mr. Chuck Serac. He used to be a Boy Scout, and here's how the Boy Scout values helped him out later on in life. If you know somebody that this interview could relate to them in any way, please share it. I really want to provide value to as many people as possible. And with that said, stay tuned for part two. And until then, take care.